Before I read this passage, I, I do want to say um, that I, I got uh, yesterday morning, I got a text message from um, Patty Sibbett informing me that her husband, Jerry, had passed away early in the morning. And, um, and we went back and forth a couple times throughout the day. Um, I know many of us in this room don't know Jerry Sibbett or, or Patty, but um, they are part of our church. And I was honored to be able to meet Jerry before, before he died. And uh, it was, it's been a long road for the both of them. And one thing I was praying for them was that God would bring his rest and his comfort to both of them throughout these final days. And I, I would encourage you to continue praying that way for Patty. If you have been involved around, uh, if somebody has died in your family that's close to you, there's just a lot of busyness that can come with taking care of things that makes it really hard to actually process that you just lost someone that you deeply love. And uh, it's just a very confusing and, and can be conflicting time. And so I would encourage you to pray for Patty, that she would have rest, that their kids would have rest in their hearts as they process through this. It doesn't mean we expect things to just be fine. Uh, but we want to pray for the peace of the Lord to come and, and be with them and be present with them. So um, I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to, I'm going to pray for them as before I pray for us. But I wanted you to know why I was, I was praying. This is Matthew 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, let us go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand there idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when every evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friends, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. <clears throat> and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we lift up to you our sister, Patty Simmons, and we thank you, God, that you are faithful to her, and you have been for years and years and years. You have been her sustenance, her joy, and her delight. It's evident, it's obvious even for someone like me who's only just met her. And Father, I thank you for your faithfulness, your generosity to her husband, Jerry. And Father, I thank you for the kindness and generosity 
that you demonstrated to us through them. And Father, I, I thank you for carrying Jerry through the valley of the shadow of death, that where he is now, you are with him also, that there is nowhere that he could go where you would not also be. And Lord, we are, we are grateful that he is with you, and he is free, He's, he is healed. And Jesus, I, I pray that you would bring a, an echo of that healing and comfort to Patty now, that you would you would bring people to represent your faithful kindness to her. And that she would, she would grow deeper into that rest, even in a way that doesn't make sense, that it really would be a peace of God that doesn't, doesn't match up with our understanding. Father, I thank you that we can turn to you for this because you are generous and kind. I thank you for this word that, that shows that to us. I pray, God, that our hearts would be soft to your generosity. Make our, make our hearts to be penetrated by your word. Shape us, inform us into a kind of people who submit to the teaching of Jesus and grow into his life. We thank you, God. Amen. <clears throat> if, you, um, if you have children, as I do, at the heart of this parable that Jesus teaches is, I'm sure, the refrain that you have heard dozens of times, as have I. That's not fair. It is the thing that I contend with with every one of my children at various points of every single day. That's not fair because... As we know, as parents, children have different capabilities, they're older, there's different levels of maturity, so you don't treat your children exactly the same, and they point out the difference to you and inform you repeatedly and insistently, that is not fair. And that complaint, that objection, is at the center of what this story is telling us. And Jesus ultimately is using that objection to put on display the character of the king, of the vineyard owner, of himself, the kingdom of God. This is in a, a section of Matthew that for several chapters is talking about the nature of the kingdom, about who is in, what it requires to be in there, and what the, the king is like in the kingdom. So just previous to this, in Matthew 19, is the story of the rich young ruler who wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus tells him to obey the commandments and Comically, the rich young ruler says, yep, done it, nailed it, followed all the commandments. And Jesus says, great, sell your possessions and follow me. And he goes away sad because he's wealthy and he can't do it. And at the end of, of that story, the disciples are going back and forth with him and saying, look, even if the rich guy can't follow you, then, then how can we? And Jesus says that this is the nature of the kingdom. And then, he, then he said, the disciples say, well, we've given all that we have to follow you now. And Jesus uh, gets at their attitude of entitlement and tells them for the first time that the first will be last and the last will be first. And then he tells this story and he ends with the same refrain. The first will be last and the last will be first. The first time he's, he's talking about this distinction between rich and poor 
And this time, he's talking about something slightly different. In this story, there is, a, there is this dilemma of the harvest. And this would have been uh, something that every person who was listening understood. Jesus was a, a brilliant teacher. He's very simple in what he talks about and he uses illustrations that they would have been able to get their hands around. They understand that harvest time requires labor and that harvesting in a vineyard is labor intensive. It is not something where you just go and swack through the fields like hay or wheat. It is something you have to meticulously pull through. It requires a lot of labor. And so this would have been a scenario they would have been familiar with. Jesus is presenting the master of the vineyard going into the town square, finding labor at the beginning of the day, hiring them. And then it seems the harvest is larger in this scenario, so he keeps going back at different intervals of time. And what is, the time intervals are like 6 in the morning, 9 in the morning, noon, and then ultimately at 5 in the afternoon, an hour before the day is supposed to be over. And the, the master of the vineyard says, I'll, I'll give you a day's wages for your labor here in my fields. And the people come and they work faithfully, and at the end of the day is when the crux of the, the parable happens. Because every single person, no matter when they were hired, from six in the morning to five at night, they get a full day's wages. And the people who have come latest in the day, they get paid first, and they get a full day's wages. So the guys who came first, they're like, well, one hour gets a day's wages. I've been here for 12 hours. I'm going to get tons of money here. And they're extremely disappointed when into their hand is put one day's wages, just like the master of the vineyard proposed to them. And they say, what is this all about? And the master of the vineyard said, I gave you what I promised. Who, Who are you to impinge upon my generosity? I owe you nothing. And Jesus says, the first will be last. The last will be first. Jesus, this is not an instruction on labor management. If you have a business, I would not encourage you to run your business this way. And nor is that the point of this parable where Jesus is telling you to run your business this way. He is telling you not the economics of your business, but the economics of the kingdom of God. And what he's telling about is not necessarily the wages or the worth of the wages or who receives the wages. He's telling you something about the nature of the king of the kingdom, the one who gives the wages. And here, the guys who come last, their objection is the one that is in all of our mouths from the time you're a little child. That is not fair. And what Jesus is trying to instruct his people, his disciples, and us is that to come into the kingdom with the idea that the the best kind of economic reckoning you can imagine is that of fairness is, is a cheap and constraining model. And the kingdom of God does not operate by such a small principle as fairness. Because underneath the question of fairness is the question of what I deserve. You cannot have the kind of of objection that my kids have, that your kids have, that if we're honest, that we have together even as adults 
Underneath that objection that this isn't fair is another statement, I deserve better. If you are standing there objecting uh, to your mom or your dad that I, I, this is not fair, I should have what they have, the should is what is in view, the obligation is what is in view, you and I intrinsically believe I deserve more, I deserve better. And so when we descend, and it is a descent, into the economy of fairness, Jesus is saying the kingdom would be constrained. Just like the laborer, the master of the vineyard is saying, you cannot, should you constrain my generosity because of the reckoning that you need according to fairness. It is not about what you deserve. That is not what the economy of the kingdom is about. And this is central to the biblical story. This idea that you and I have quite naturally, that we deserve more, is paired with a consistent and persistent doubt that God would in fact be generous and kind to us. The question is often posed, is God going to be good to me? So we have within us, in our guts, in the bones of us, this conviction that I deserve better and that God would not do good to me. That's why the, the central, the, the organizing story, the foundational story of humanity in the Bible starts with just that question. Because Adam and Eve are in the garden and they are showed the one tree and the whole garden of Eden that they cannot have. And the, the temptation comes to them, the argument comes to them, why would God withhold this from you? That is not fair. It is because he does not want you to have something good. And the, the fall happens, the moment of decline, the moment of death happens when those people in their hearts begin to believe, God might not be good to me. He might withhold from me. I need to go and get what I deserve. And in that moment, everything falls to pieces. And that question, that, that central doubt, that central conviction that goes with that doubt, that God might not be good and I deserve maximal goodness that I, as I understand it, is the thing that shapes all of human history. From, from the moment of the Garden of Eden, the rest of Israel's story constantly hinges around this question, is God going to be good to his people? Is God going to do what those people need? Is God going to be Fair to them. When Israel is traveling through the wilderness, when they are again and again provided for, the moments of unfaithfulness that inevitably follow again and again comes with this central question. Is God going to be good to me? And their answer again and again is no. The God of Israel who has brought his people out of Egypt, who has brought them through the Red Sea, who has brought them to the mountain, who has provided for them the water, has provided them the manna, that God, he in this moment, he will not be good to me. I deserve better. And what is the choice that Israel makes ultimately? The thing that they keep saying is, we were better off. 
in Egypt. We were better off in slavery. And this is the way that we are, is it not? At least in the economy of fairness. I know what is coming to me. And I can do the calculus and I can do the math. And I will tit for tat my way through life. And what the God of Israel is saying throughout the Old Testament, what Jesus is saying here is, that economy is far too small. And God is better than that. You and I are corrupted and bound by this incessant, incessant thirst for fairness. When if we would open our hands and instead ask for God's generosity, we would find Him to be better than what we are asking for. This kind of central question is in fact what Paul is dealing with in the book of Romans. He's writing to the church in Rome to a mixture of, of Jews and Gentiles. And the Jewish people there in that church believe that in some sense they, they are owed something from God, that salvation and corporation into the people of God is some part of, of a lever, a, a hold that they have over God, that they have a right to salvation more than the Gentiles. So when Paul opens his letter to the book of Romans in Romans 1, he spends time telling you why the Gentiles don't deserve salvation. And then in Romans 2, when he sees in his mind the Jewish people who might be in the church, he turns to them and says, oh, but you people, don't you think that you have a right to think that you're better than them? You yourselves, you have accused them of idolatry, but are you not yourselves idolaters? Aren't you yourself the ones who have excluded yourself from the salvation of God? And it builds in Romans 3 to the very famous question that if you grew up in Sunday school classes, you've probably heard. Uh, who then is deserving of what God plans to do for his people? Romans 3, starting at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of, that is in Christ Jesus. And in verse 27, Paul throws out these hypothetical questions that he answers for us. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By the, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. All of this is a gift. The, the thing that Jesus' hearers do not understand in this moment, the thing that the people in the parable don't understand and the hearers don't understand, is that every one of them is the last laborer. 
every one of them is the one who comes at the last hour and receives a full day's wages for one hour of work. The problem that you and I have is that you and I, by nature, think that we are the one who has come first thing in the morning and are owed at least a day's wages. But Jesus' point is that you and I are the last ones. We are not the first ones. We are the ones who live at the depths of God's generosity. God intends to be supremely generous to and with his people because that is how the kingdom works. And the supreme demonstration of God's generosity is planted in the ground before you. In the cross of Jesus is the demonstration to you that God will not be bound by your notions of what you think you are owed and will not be bound by what you think is good, but he will instead do good to you that is both just and super abundantly generous. God will not allow you to be constrained by your tiny vision of what God should be like, but will instead be, as Paul said, better than you could ask or you could imagine. And in this season of Lent that we are in together, this is a season where together we bow our hearts and we look inside and we say, reveal to me, O God, the places where I believe that I have made you a debtor. And where God will say to us gently and persistently, God is in debt to no man. You cannot leverage God into giving you what you think is good, but instead, you who deserve nothing will be given way more than you could ask or imagine because of the work of Jesus Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection. God will not be bound to you or in your debt, but instead will claim all of you with His superabundant generosity. Today is the day then to consider, where have I fallen into the trap that my children live in? Where have I looked and railed against God and said, it is not fair? And let me be clear here. There are things that have happened to you and in you that are not right. They are not just and they are not good. And it is not wrong to say that. The evil that has been done to you is well and truly evil. And you should put a name to that and say that is not just, it is not right. But that is a different question than the one we are addressing this morning. Because we can easily shade that question into looking at all of our life and saying, that is not fair. God will always be just with you. And God will not be fair with you. And this morning is a morning to reckon with that. Have you confused the ideas of divine justice 
of the God who, who does right and will always do right with the ideas that we are born with of God's fairness. And if you been bitter towards God because he has not lived down to what you have demanded of him out of fairness. This morning, God is coming to liberate you, to deliver you like he always delivers his people, to pledge and to promise to you that he will be just to you and he will be generous towards you. And if this morning you are here laboring under the heavy weight of shame that also comes with the delusion that you must act as one who labors all day to get what you deserve in the kingdom, today there is a good word for you. It is the gospel. It is good news to you that if you have labored heavily, if you have fallen down, if you are burdened by shame this morning and you say, if God is going to be fair to me, then he should cast me from his presence. He should be furious with me. He should want nothing to do with me. Then here's the good news. God is not fair. God is generous. And if you are his son or his daughter, you do not labor under the burden of your small view of the fairness of God. But instead, this master stands in front of you and says, you could come to me at the end of the day and I will give you the full day's wages. You may have been born down under the weight of all your sin. Again, you may say, I, you don't understand. I've come to church like a hundred times now and I'm here again. You will never outspend the generosity of this vineyard master. You will never come to the place where your cost is not something that he can cover and outgive you in. He will not let you go back to Egypt because of your persistent insistence on fairness. He will instead say, no, I will be generous to you instead. And if you have been small and ashamed and afraid of God, Jesus' story and his word to you is clear. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And all it requires that you say is, oh Jesus, I'm the last. I don't deserve anything. I need you. I need your generosity. I need your kindness. And God will not put you in a probationary period to see whether you really mean it, whether you really deserve it. He will instead prove himself to be this way as he always has been. He will be good to you. And he never will stop. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness. In this season of repentance, God, we confess that we often try to hold things over your head. We compare the things that we have, the circumstances of our life, to our friends, our neighbors, our enemies, and say, I should have equal to them. God owes me. 
And God, we, we have allowed that to creep into the, the caverns of our heart and make us bitter. We have chosen Egypt. And Jesus, I, I pray that you would forgive us. And God, I pray that you would convict all of us who, who don't yet feel the horror of that. I pray by your Holy Spirit now, today, in this season, throughout our lives, that you would gently unearth these quiet attitudes of our heart. And you would call us to repentance. And Jesus, I, I pray for the people on the other side of this coin who, who have just assumed that you were fair and that you would give them what they deserve. The fear of that, God. And drive men and women underground and far away from you. And Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, proclaim a word of liberation to them, of welcome and acceptance, a word of grace. Father, we thank you that you are far better than we could have hoped for. There is no one like you, Jesus. We thank you so much. Heal us and restore us in life with you. Amen.